Well, it's my absolute delight to introduce Hannah Pearson to you. Uh, she leads our Holbeck service. If you've not met her, she also leads our discipleship track. Uh, she's just an all-round brilliant person, really. So um, why don't we give her a round of applause as she speaks to us. Evening everyone, it is lovely to be here with you. Um, as Matt said, I um, normally at this time on a Sunday would be down in Holbeck. Um, when Matt was talking about the finances then, he said about what you give here gives uh, works all across the city. We so, so value that in Holbeck because we're working in one of the poorest areas of the city. And our little church gathering there, we have about uh, 40 or 50 people, uh, many of whom don't have an income or are on benefits. And they're really generous people, but uh, they need you guys as their wider church family to help support what we're doing there. So we so appreciate um, that we get to be part of something bigger than just ourselves. And I want to hopefully connect you with some of that tonight. By my being here, I sort of represent a whole load of people that are your family, are your brothers and sisters. And um, if you were at the Citywide Celebration a couple of months ago, you might have heard me say we uh, have increased our services in Holbeck. We've met once a month for the last few years. Um, and yeah, yeah, about two years. And uh, just last month we went to meeting twice a month um, and just to let you know that's going really well um, God's been really good to us and we've met quite a few new people um, in that season of increasing it feels like because we see each other more regularly there's a bit more momentum for people joining and I want to tell you about a lady who um, has been coming uh, for the last couple of uh, months and she's not yet a Christian but um, she's a really key woman in the community she owns a shop right in the middle of the community loads of people go in and out of her shop not really to buy things just to have a cup of tea and a chat she's a real like mother in the community and she came she came um yeah a couple of times on her second time we at the end of the service just invited anyone to come forward if they wanted healing in their body and she came because she had a long-term back condition and um, that was um just quite uh, sort of painful on a daily basis and we prayed for her and she said in the moment that the pain had gone away and then i saw her the next night at a meeting and she said um yeah the pain has completely gone she said she woke up that morning and it was the first time for years that she had got out of bed without feeling any pain isn't that great um and yeah come on let's celebrate it's good um and I saw her again, that was probably two weeks ago. I've, every time I've seen her, most of which has been just around the community, um, she has said to me straight away, I'm still pain-free. It's so amazing. This is changing my life. And so I, we're, we're just saying to her, well, that's God. He's real. He wants you to know that he loves you. And she is beginning to understand and, and, and sort of come towards relationship with, with him. So that's so exciting. Um, and yeah, we just want you to keep... Uh, people in Holbeck in your hearts keep praying for us keep um, supporting what we're doing and I'll keep coming and telling you how it's going is that alright? <laughs> so um, on to tonight uh, we get to start a brand new preaching series tonight. It's good news, isn't it? So we are starting a new series in the book of the Psalms. So the Psalms, if you know, are in the Old Testament. And it's a book of sort of poems and verses that are written to and about God. And this series is called Food for the Soul. Isn't that good? Because God's given us such a gift in Scripture that um, the, the Psalms and, and, and all, all, the, all the books of the Bible really are food for the soul. They're given by God to nourish us, to encourage us. 
in who he is, to, to stir our faith and to um, show us what we're really, really made for. And C.S. Lewis, the Christian writer who you may well have heard of, said this, a man can't always be defending the truth. There must be a time to feed on it. So that's what we're going to do tonight and for the next few weeks. We're going to be feeding on the truth. And we're particularly looking at Psalms that were then quoted in the New Testament. And this is really interesting because it shows us that for the New Testament writers, they too fed on the, on the food of Scripture. They knew their Psalms, they knew their Old Testament deeply. It meant something to them and they would remember them and recall them to one another to encourage each other. Um, but it's more than that. What we see in Psalms that are quoted in the New Testament, it's like as, New Test- as the New Testament writers uh, met Jesus, as they uh, encountered him and begun to understand who he is. Their Old Testament scriptures came to life in a new way because they suddenly realised, gosh, this, they've all been about him. And so you know what it's like when you, um, when you know someone and you're getting to know them and then you suddenly find out like you've got a friend in common or you've got a shared experience, you were somewhere at the same time and suddenly there's like a connection point that brings your, your relationship on quickly. It's a bit like that here. When the, when the New Testament um, writers meet Jesus, suddenly their old friend the Psalms are like life again to them for new reasons because they realise in Jesus this is who that they were all talking about. And so we're just going to look um, at one particular quote in the New Testament from Matthew's Gospel where Jesus quotes a Psalm to explain something about who he was that totally blew people's minds. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22. If you haven't, don't worry, the verses will all come up on the screen. I'm going to read from verse 41 to 46. So Matthew writes, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, and here's our Psalms quote, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So just before this passage, the Pharisees and Sadducees, which are like groups of super-religious people amongst the Jews, were trying to trick Jesus. They'd been asking him really tricky questions, trying to get him to say something so controversial that he could be arrested. So they want to arrest him, they want to shut him up because they do not like what they're saying. And so they're trying, what he's saying, so they're trying to trap him. But it's almost like Jesus enjoys it. He just bounces their questions back on them and gives them nothing to pin on him. And then here he says, okay guys, I've got one for you. You've been questioning me. Let me question you. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Now, to be honest, for them, that would have been a pretty easy question. So this word Messiah means saviour. And if you were a Jew in that time, you'd have, been, you'd have grown up understanding that the Messiah was someone who was going to come and set the Jews free, set the people of Israel free. And as a young Jew, you'd be praying and hoping that the Messiah would come in your generation. But the problem was they thought this Messiah was going to come like a powerful earthly king who was going to liberate them in a sort of a military way. And they were so fixed on their view of the Messiah being like that, that they actually missed him when he came. Because we know that Jesus is the Messiah. But he looked a little bit different to that warrior king military man that they were expecting. So Jesus had to take them back into their Old Testament scriptures to fill in the pictures, to show them what they'd missed and prove they really were speaking about him. 
So he starts on common ground. They would have known the Messiah would have come from the line of David. Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied, easy. But now he goes in for the jugular. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Well, how is it then that in Psalm 110, in your Old Testament, did David, who's your hero king, filled and inspired by the Spirit of God, whom you worship, call him Lord? That's not the way a king would speak to one of his descendants. Verse 42, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your um, enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? See, family, um, honour and respect was hugely important in the Jewish culture. So maybe a son would call their father Lord, master, the one who has authority over the family. But never, never would a father call a son Lord. That would have been degrading. So what can it mean? What does it mean that David calls uh, Jesus Lord in this way? The Pharisees couldn't deny that the psalm was about the Messiah. And they couldn't deny that the um, Messiah was going to be from David's line. But Jesus is showing them, you've missed a crucial point. The Messiah is not merely an earthly king. Yes, he came in human form. Yes, he was born to a family of David's line. But he was no ordinary son. He is divine. He's the son of God, born of a woman, but conceived by the Holy Spirit, fully man, fully God, like no other, set apart, distinct, with no equal. He is God. David understood this and so was happy to call him Lord. And this is why this quote is food for the soul for us, because it tells us that our Messiah, our Lord, is not just a heroic person. He's not just a good man. He's not just a great teacher. He is God. He's divine. He's not like us. He's bigger. He's greater. He has power. He has authority. He is able to do things that we cannot. He is able to defeat death and overcome sin. This is good news to us, isn't it? This is good news because only God, a divine king could truly save us. Only God himself entering our world is what we really need. Do you believe that? Is that true? We love a heroic figure, don't we? Martin Luther King, William Wilberforce. These were both great liberators that prove that people can do great things, but it's all confined in the parameters of this life. We need more than that. We need a Messiah who can defeat death, who can overcome the grave, who can fully deal with sin and restore us to relationship with God. And Jesus comes and says, I am he. Is that good? Would you agree? We don't come here just to sing to a person, do we? If Jesus was just a person, why, what are we doing? Why are we worshipping him like this? But he's not just a person. He is God. He has power. He has might. He is the almighty God. And that is good. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's life to us tonight. And so this is why Jesus quotes this psalm. To prove that the Messiah is not just a man, but God himself. And do you know this was so groundbreaking that it completely shut up his accusers. They had no idea what to say. Verse 46, no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask them any more questions. His critics were silenced by fear. But for his followers, this was great news. And I believe it's still great news for us today, for you and me, because knowing that our Messiah is truly God assures us of three really important things. Firstly, justice, salvation, and purpose. And so that's what we're going to talk about now, justice. The image that we have in the quote Jesus uses is of Jesus, the Messiah, sitting at the right hand of God. 
It's a position of power, of authority to judge the world. And it says his enemies are going to be put under his feet. It tells us that ultimately justice will be done. And all who oppose Jesus, all who oppose God will be submitted to Jesus. And if we look back at the psalm that Jesus is quoting and read around just the line that is quoted, we see this described further. So Psalm 110 says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. And then on to verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. So the picture is Jesus, king, ruling and reigning. And it talks of a future judgment that even kings and rulers will be subjected to. And this was more the language that the Pharisees had focused on. This is where they'd got that picture of the warrior conquering king from. But again, it's not just a military victory. It was not about a military victory for the nation of Israel. That's what they wanted. But what about the rest of the human race? God's got a bigger plan than that. I don't know about you, but I speak to people all the time who say, I want to believe in God. Or maybe I used to believe in God. But I don't understand if God does exist, why is there so much wrong with the world? Why is the world still like this if Jesus has actually come? Why does so much wrong happen that seems to go unpunished? Injustice, abuse, corruption, it seems to be everywhere. But you know, this is an important uh, theme throughout scripture. The Bible doesn't shy away from it. It acknowledges that the world is not as it should be. But God says that this is not going to last forever. That he has always had a plan to exact perfect justice through Jesus, the divine Messiah. And this is so crucial to us that we know that our God is a God of justice. Because without a God of justice, there is no answer to the evils that we see. But trusting in a good God who is just and has power and authority to judge gives us assurance of hope even in the midst of injustice. This is good news for us. It means that justice is secured. So justice will be done for all the wrongs in the world. I know people who faced horrific suffering in their lives. Wrongs have been committed against them that have been hugely damaging to their lives. And it's like it's gone unnoticed. There has not been remorse or justice and experiencing that can deeply affect the future for them and can rob of so much in an earthly sense there's no hope you'll have seen stories in the news of families who spend their lives pursuing justice for wrongs that have been committed but it ends up ruining their lives because their lives become about this almost impossible task it takes over and it actually stops them really living what Jesus promises is that we don't have to live like that because it's not on us to seek justice. He will deal with it. It's like suddenly receiving the lawyer you can never afford who can actually do something about your case. Jesus says, trust me, one day everything will be put under my feet. So we may not see justice in this life, but knowing it is secure in Jesus enables us to live free now because not only does he secure it for the future, but he meets us now in the midst of pain and brokenness and he brings healing and restoration, which means that we are not defined by what has happened to us in the past. But Jesus offers new life, real life, life to the full, despite our history. We know true freedom by trusting both in his power to heal and restore now and to exact justice ultimately.
So justice is secured. But secondly, we're free to forgive because this is true. So listen to this story from South Africa. It's a true story. A frail black woman rises slowly to her feet. She's something over 70 years of age. Facing across the room, there are several white security police officers, one of whom, Mr. Vanderbrook, has just been tried and found implicated in the murders of both the woman's son and her husband some years before. And then there's a vivid description of what happened, which I won't read out, but um, she was forced to watch her husband's death. And the last words she heard from his lips before he died were, Father, forgive them. Now the woman stands in the courtroom and listens to the confessions offered by Mr. Vanderbrook. A member of one of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission turns to her and asks, so what do you want? How should justice be done to this man who has so brutally destroyed your family? I want three things, begins the old woman calmly but confidently. I want first to be taken to the place where my husband's body was burnt so that I can gather up the dust and give his remains a decent burial. She pauses and then continues. My husband and son were my only family. I want secondly, therefore, for Mr. Vanderbrook to become my son. I would like for him to come twice a month to the ghetto and spend a day with me so that I can pour out on him whatever love I still have remaining in me. And finally, she says, I want a third thing. This was also the wish of my husband. And so, I would kindly ask that someone come to my side and lead me across the courtroom so that I can take Mr. Vanderbrook in my arms and embrace him and let him know that he is truly forgiven. As the court assistants come to lead the elderly woman across the room, Mr. Vanderbrook, overwhelmed by what he's just heard, faints. As he does, those in the courtroom, family, friends and neighbours, all victims of decades of oppression and injustice, begin to sing softly but assuredly, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Isn't that incredible? That woman, that community, even in the midst of suffering and justice, knew God in such a way that meant freedom, uh, forgiveness was possible for them. They were free to forgive. They were free to forgive. And how incredible to live in that freedom that she was willing to take him in as her son. That is the power of the gospel. That is the power of knowing a God who is a God of justice. There's freedom in forgiveness. And so if you're here today and you have been seriously wronged and you are in need of justice, I don't want to undermine or minimise your situation in any way, but I do want to point you to the only one who can deal with it. Because in Jesus, ultimate justice is secured, but healing and freedom is available now. So come to him. Come and receive that from him. Come and have your life transformed by him. But I wonder, some of you might still be struggling, but why the wait? Why do we have to wait for the enemies to be a footstool under the feet? And this kind of leads us on to the next point, because Jesus isn't holding back because he can't be bothered, or because he isn't powerful enough, or because he doesn't love us enough. You know, elsewhere in scripture, this image of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, it's a position of power and authority, but it's also a position of intercession. He's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us and for our world, for our friends and families, for our neighbours, for our um, course mates and workmates that don't yet know Jesus. Jesus is interceding. He's waiting for more to come to him. He wants as many people as possible to discover salvation before this ultimate judgment. So Jesus, our divine Messiah, he is secondly a us of salvation 
If we look back to Psalm 110, just beyond the line that's quoted in Matthew, we see Jesus described as the divine king, but also as a priest. So in verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, you might have heard of him, he was an Old Testament priest who kind of turned up out of nowhere and met with Abraham, and his name means king of righteousness. So unlike most Old Testament priests, he was a priest, but he was also a king. And so he's a fitting pointer to Jesus. And so often in the Bible, the writers say, oh, remember that character, remember that person. Jesus is a bit like him, but he's better. So Jesus is a bit like Melchizedek in that he's a priest king, but he's even better. And why is this significant? Well, what did a priest do? A priest connected the people to God. He acted as a mediator, a go-between. He made sacrifices on behalf of the people so that, the, so that their sins could be atoned for. Because this is the problem with all mankind throughout history. We cannot get to God by ourselves because he is holy and we are not. So in the Old Testament, the only way to connect with God was through a priest. But Jesus is a priest of a different kind. He didn't just make sacrifices on our behalf. He was the sacrifice for us. So Jesus died to take the punishment for all sin, everything we've done wrong, everything that's been done wrong to us, everything that is wrong with this world, all guilt, all blame, all shame, all death, all darkness. He took on himself and he died. And his death dealt with it once and for all. So that now we don't have to make sacrifices to get to God, but we trust in the sacrifice that Jesus made and we're able to approach God face to face. Do you know that? Do you experience that? That's what Jesus died for. And when Jesus died, he said, it is finished. The separation between us and God is over. He's done everything necessary for us to be made right with God. And he began a new era in the world where finally things could begin to get better because there's an answer to sin and death. Do you know, if Jesus was just a man, dying for us would have been a nice thing to do. But what would it have achieved? But because Jesus was God, dying for us broke the power of death. It broke the power of sin. And it gave us a whole new life, an opportunity to know our maker, to be made right before him and have relationship with him. If you don't know that this afternoon, that is the invitation that God offers to all of us to come into relationship with him. And the way to, to enter in is just to trust in who Jesus was and the sacrifice that he made. You know, back to the quote, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. You know, priests in the Old Testament never sat down because there was always more work to be done. There were always more sacrifices to be made. There was always more sin going on that needed atoning for. But Jesus sits because in his sacrifice, the work is done. In Hebrews 10, it says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. He's done it. 
Jesus assures us of salvation. It's not about us being the best version of ourselves to get it right, to strive and strain to be who we think God wants us to be. He's done it, and that gives us peace. Do you know what it is to live with peace, or do you live with a striving of, I need to do this, I need to be like this, I need to be better? It's what our society tells us all the time. You need to be better at your work. You need to be a better parent. You need to live up and keep living up. But Jesus says salvation is not like that. I'm good enough. You are free. Do you know that this afternoon? Do you need to hear that again? You are free. Jesus is good enough and he's paid it all. So Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, but he's not sitting back, lazing, as though he's done his bit, now it's on you. He's, he's leaning forward in a posture of intercession, saying, Lord, would more of them come? Would more of them hear? Would more of them know who I am? He's waiting for us to respond to him. And you know, finally, our third assurance from our divine Messiah is purpose for our lives. And this is so important. Back to the psalm. In verse 3, it says, Your troops will be willing on the day of your on, on your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. And the image here, remember it's poetic language. The image is of Jesus leading an army of followers. So Jesus is the one who has achieved salvation and justice for the world and he is bringing that but he doesn't do it alone he chooses to invite an army alongside alongside him and that army is us as soon as we believe in Jesus and put our trust in him he brings us into what he's doing he calls us into his mission to bring justice and salvation into the world and do you know that that is so important to us because it brings purpose to our lives and you know purpose is something that we're all looking for isn't it if we're honest everyone in the world everywhere is searching for meaning and purpose when we feel we have it we're driven we're motivated we're unstoppable but if we lack it oh it's so hard we feel crushed and hopeless you know when we come to Jesus we're realizing that that yearning in all of us to know the meaning of our lives is put there because God put it there because there is great meaning to our lives there is meaning for us because God is on the most incredible mission to bring salvation and justice to the world but he wants you to be part of it he wants your life to be a life that re- um, releases salvation and releases justice to other people as we invite people to Jesus what better purpose could we have we're caught it's not just something we do it's the essence of who we are it's what we're made for and it's worked out in whatever context or situation we're in so you'll know as a church we've been doing these everyday impact Sundays where we've been looking at a certain work a particular workplace um, and talking a bit about what it means um, in that workplace to be a messenger of God to be um, part of God's mission to bring salvation to the world and it's it's been so encouraging hasn't it to hear stories of how different people are working that out in different contexts and if you've never thought about that for for your own life hear me tonight that whatever job you work in whatever wherever you go whether you're a mum going to mum's groups whether you're unemployed looking for work and going into the job centre whether you're just walking around your community going in and out of shops wherever you are Jesus has purpose for your life to bring salvation to others as you live in such a way that glorifies him and that communicates something of who he is do you know that means that life suddenly it's it's more exciting means that work isn't just about paying the bills it's about being God's hands and feet it's about being salt and light it makes life exciting one of my really good friends is a doctor and recently she told me a story of um 
you know what it's like for doctors. It can be difficult to share faith in the workplace. But one of her colleagues um, was complaining of an illness. And she was like, well, I can speak, say whatever I like to my colleagues. They're not the patients. So she said, oh, do you believe in God? And this woman was like, no, not really. Like vaguely maybe, but not really. And she was like, well, I, I do. I believe in God. I believe that he loves us and, 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 so, and that he has power to heal us. Can I, can I pray for you? And she prayed for this lady. The lady went away. And then the next shift she came back and she's like, do you know what? I'm actually feeling a bit better. Do you think that's because you prayed? And just like, yeah, I think it is. Do you know that God is really powerful and he loves you and you don't have to know him yet, but you can start praying to him and that begins a relationship with him. And suddenly this woman has gone from having no clue that God might love her to having an inkling. Maybe he does. And that's changed her life so much. And then imagine if she meets someone else who's a Christian in another context that gives her a similar snippet and then that brings her on. We don't have to always do the whole bit, but we all have little inputs, little contacts with people and people are being transformed. People are being healed and people are being set free and they need that. We need that, don't we? People are living with things in their life, pain and brokenness in their life that has no hope in this world, but we have hope in Jesus and we need to be sharing it out. And do you know what? Jesus just delights in, in sort of sending us out to share. And so if you tonight just, just need to, a bit of encouragement for that, a bit of vision from God, a bit of excitement for that, God wants to give that to you. He wants to meet with you and show you how you can be a minister of his salvation and justice in your life. It's countercultural to live like that, but it is honestly the, the best way to live. So as we finish, God's desire is, us, is for us to be nourished in him. He gives us scripture as food for the soul. And as we feed on it, we see who he is. And as we see who he is, our lives are changed inwardly but outwardly. He changes our hearts, but he also changes what we do, what we think, what we feel about ourselves, about our lives. And I don't know where you're, where you're at on that process tonight, but I know that what I've said about God is true and that he is here. And as we now worship him and spend time encountering him, that he wants to take you further on that journey of knowing who he is and being released into all he's called you to be. So would you stand with me? And if we could have the band back, we're just going to spend some time responding to Jesus and I'm going to pray for us. Lord, oh Lord, thank you that right now you are sitting at the right hand of the Father. Thank you that you have done it, that death is defeated, that your work is done and so you're sitting and you're sitting knowing that justice is coming, that freedom is available now and you're interceding for us and we and we just say Jesus we we want to be caught up in what you're doing we want to be caught up in who you are we are overwhelmed that the God of the world firstly would come to us, but secondly would pray for us. That we're important enough to you to be prayed for, to be cared for, to be used. Jesus, would you just come and meet with each of us now? Would you come and reveal more of who you are? Would you come and show us uh, what, sort of what you have for us, what our next step in you is? Would you come now and be amongst us as we worship, Lord Jesus? Amen.